my name is Dave Cotter, uh, born in Utah. I uh, came down here in 1998, and when I came down here, got settled in, uh, met a gal. Uh, we started living together. We got married, and within about 30 days uh, after the marriage, I had woken up and literally just thought, what did I do? Uh, who am I? What am I doing? And uh, immediately just started to go into self-sabotage. Um, started to drink heavily, pornography, and just was pushing the envelope on starting to gain weight. I got up to about probably 260 pounds. Finally, after about five years, um, my wife just had it. You know, I was a coward as a husband. I wanted to have nothing to do with intimacy or caring. And uh, I was just always looking for the next buzz, the next fix, the next thing that was going to help me get to a place where I thought I needed to be. So unfortunately, uh, January of 2007, I gave the same excuse that I think most of the world does. Is I just said, you know, this isn't working out anymore and uh, jumped ship. So kind of that next phase was uh, my business. So I continued to pursue rapidly um, work and success. In August of 2007, bought my partner out. And about a month later, the market just crashed. Um, and I just remember I just watched uh, as my identity just started to kind of spiral down the toilet. I just watched as I had to lay employees off. I watched as my pride uh, continued to take hits and blows. And everything just kept kind of going down the spiral. And um, finally, in uh, September of 2009, um, I was driving down the 101 on the Pima Princess exit and I was kind of thinking about my life and where I was headed, what I was doing, who I was, and uh, God just painted a black picture. I pulled off on the side of the road and I just, I was crying and I just kind of cried out. I didn't know who I was really crying out to, but I just said, I'm done. I'm done with me. I, I don't want to do this anymore. And it was at that moment in time that I was ready. God was drawing me in, showed up at Scottsdale Bible, got plugged in, gentleman kind of reached out with some courage and asked me if I was ready to receive Christ. I prayed and received Christ into my heart that night. It's been a journey and it was very rapid. As my life is now with work and with my relationships, with my walk with God, He's done this phenomenal job of reconciling everything together in and through the Holy Spirit in my life to basically keep us at a place of balance, a place that I know that I don't need to search for significance. I don't need to push the envelope and margin. I don't need to go to the extreme of what the world has to offer. You know, the world really told me, uh, gain more of who you are to really become this identity. Uh, my life in Christ now is get rid of who you are so that Christ can show up and magnify who he is in your life. And that's really the difference. It's dying to who you are, which is total joy. All right, let's pray. Father. Uh, the mission statement of our church that we get right from your word is to win people to faith in Christ, build them up in their faith, and then to send us all back out into our respective fears of influence to be winners and builders ourselves. 
And God, to hear a story like Dave's reminds us that when we give you the right of way in our lives as a church, that, Lord, indeed, you choose to use us. And so, Lord, I would pray that as we all consider Dave's story today as a prelude to this idea of margin and the power that you can work in our lives uh, when we will just make ourselves vessels usable to you, that, God, you would encourage us indeed today as a church and then individually uh, in our lives. Thank you for Dave and for his story, and thank you for the empowering of your Holy Spirit in his life uh, to enable him not only to come to faith in you, but to now, Lord, uh, live the kind of life that is pleasing to you and is finding purpose and joy as a result. God, as we uh, open your book now and talk about this thing called margin and sort of set up the next month here at our church, I pray, God, that you'd help us to be attentive and focused on the things that you would have for us. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So we start a new series, as Troy mentioned today, on this whole idea of margin, kind of a cryptic word, how to develop more time, financial, emotional, and physical reserves in our life. Just sort of picture a, a, a piece of paper, and you all know what a margin is on a piece of paper. It's where the type stops, and then you get to the edge of the paper, and you got a little white space there called margin. And what we're going to suggest in this series is that many of us live such fast-paced, overcrowded, overloaded lives that we've robbed ourselves of having any margin, any white space on the paper of our lives. And I know how some of you think. You think, well, Jamie, I've tried to have an appointment with you. You're no poster child when it comes to margin. My friend Tom Schrader, the pastor at Redemption Church, and I were traveling this week, and I told him I was the series I was starting today, and he said, I, I, I hope your people see the irony in you talking about margin. He said, you know, you're a hypocrite. And I said, Tom, I have no problem with the fact that I'm a hypocrite when it comes to this thing called margin. I said, the good news is, so's the rest of my congregation. I said, we're all in this together. All of us, I think, lead overly busy, overly packed, quite frankly, rather marginless lives. And so I've told you this story before. I love the story of the guy who, who invited his friend to church, and he said, I don't want to go to that church that's full of hypocrites. And his friend said, it's not full. we got room for one more. So the reality is, is that we're all in this together, this thing called marginless living, and though I have a ways to go too, we'll be on the journey together when it comes to margin. Now today is kind of a prelude message. Today we're just going to sort of break the ice before we dive in next week in a more solution-based way. Today we're going to outline the problem, and in order to do that, what I need you to do is one favor for me. I need you to take a step back from your very, very busy and packed life. And for the next 30 minutes, I need you to travel high above your life, all the micro activities that fill each day and each week of your life. And I want you to think with me of American culture over the last 100 years. In other words, I need you to think big picture with me this morning if we're ever going to truly understand what's going on in our culture when it comes to this thing called margin. And just so you know, people have had to do this from time to time over the years to best understand how their culture and their times have influenced them for the negative. 
About 3,000 years ago in the nation Israel, the country was in real turmoil. I guess times never change. Saul, who was the uh, first king of the first king of united Israel, had just died as king. And because of his lifelong hatred of David, his announced successor, the people are really confused as to who is going to take Saul's place. And at one point, some of you remember this, both David and one of his contemporaries, a man by the name of Ish-bosheth, were both named king. Both were declared king by competing groups of people. Kind of like the Florida election fiasco from a few years ago, where two guys were named president. Kind of like that, but even worse back then. And yet, everyone who, and yet anyone who was really thinking back then knew that David should be king because the prophet Samuel had announced it a few years before. But still, many had good arguments why Saul's son, Ish-bosheth, should be king instead. And as you can imagine, people started to take sides. And at one point in the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament, it lists all of the people who had sided with David. And I want you to listen how it describes one particular group of people. This will be very important for us as we consider our culture today. 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. It says, Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. I like how it says it there. Uh, the, the men of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And so please see, these people were not confused at all by the previous 30 years of muddled kingship in Israel. They were not having any trouble at all knowing who to follow, knowing who to align themselves with. Why? Because they had stepped back and they had taken a look at the big picture, the sweeping changes in their culture, and they saw clearly that David had been called as king. And though they respected Saul's leadership when he was alive, now that he was dead, they had no problem at all aligning with King David. Now, don't miss this. They had followed closely the trends in their culture for a 30-year <clears throat> period of time. They had seen Saul's ungodliness. They had heard of David's calling. They had seen Saul's jealousy and chasing of David. They had experienced Saul's ineffectiveness in like protecting them from the Philistines and David's obvious effectiveness. They had kept up close with all that was going on in the culture around them, so much so that when it came time to make big decisions for their life and for their community, they understood and they knew what Israel was to do. And the point for you and I is simply this, that we need today to be men and women of Issachar, people who can understand our times and know what to do. And though this applies to so many areas of our lives, from politics to family to our community, I'm going to suggest to you today that this also applies to this idea of what's happening in culture when it comes to progress and robbing us of margin. And so here's our main point today. Here's where I need you to fly at 40,000 feet today based upon this Old Testament text. And it's simply this, and that is that I would suggest to you that progress has come at a high cost, and one of the highest costs of progress that you and I experience today is this temptation toward marginless living, toward overload. 
You know, it's interesting. Progress is defined as proceeding to a higher state of development, a forward or onward movement, a gradual betterment. That's progress. And though all of history has pretty much been a forward move of progress, here's what you need to know, and that is that the little window that you and I are experiencing right now, beginning in the early 20th century and taking us now into the 21st century, say the last 100 years, has seen more progress than all the known history of the world combined. And that's not hyperbolic, and I'm not overstating it for the sake of effect. It is true. We have seen more in the way of progress just in the last four or five generations of people living in the western half of the world than the entire world has ever seen in our history of it. In fact, there's been only two times in the history of the world where it's even come close to this kind of leap in progress, one could argue that during the Bronze Age when writing was invented, or maybe during the, the time of the Reformation just before the Enlightenment when the printing press was invented, and yet most culture watchers argue that those two things, the invention of writing and the printing press, are like a misty day compared to the hurricane of progress that you and I have experienced in the last 100 years in our culture. In fact, two things that I want you to know about this whole idea of progress and marginless living. The first is that you and I really do live in a time of unprecedented change. We live in a time of unprecedented change. I mean, inherent in progress is change, and so it only makes sense that with mock speed progress comes mock speed change. That you and I really do live in a time of unprecedented change in the known history of the world. And though I'm going to suggest to you in about five minutes and for the rest of our time together after that, that much of the change has robbed you and I of something that our souls need, this thing called margin, let's first establish that the change that progress has bought has, or brought has obviously been in many ways good change. Give me a head nod that we all understand that. That is, I'm going to kind of disprogress today in a few minutes here. Having said that, progress has also brought a lot of good things. So consider the medical and scientific breakthroughs that you and I benefit from today. Antibiotics, internal surgery, painkillers, cancer treatments. All of these things prolong life and make us healthier at a much longer level than before. Our lives are more comfortable, streamlined, and easier than our grandparents ever dreamed possible. I mean, think about travel. We have planes, buses, cars, trains that can take us anywhere on the planet in a matter of hours. Think of food pres preservation and preparation devices. I mean, we now have refrigerators, freezers, ovens, stoves, microwaves, food processors, blenders, bread makers, automatic drip coffee makers. I mean, things that a hundred years ago nobody even imagined we would have. We can cook a meal in five minutes today. Can you imagine seeing that on Little House on the Prairie? It just doesn't happen. And we have gadgets galore as a result of progress. We have computers, TVs, iPods, iPhones, iPads, TV players, video cameras, digital cameras, lawnmowers, weed eaters, cement mixers, chainsaws, boom boxes, air conditioning, all these things that make our lives more convenient and productive. We have mass communication, telephones, cell phones, TVs, computers, internet, satellite communications, huge newspapers and magazines. 
In fact, this stat will blow you away. Did you know that your average New York Times newspaper on Sunday contains more information than a common 17th century Britain would encounter in a lifetime? So the news that you get on the Sunday paper contains more information than one guy living 300 years ago would ever get in a lifetime. I mean, that's the kind of progress that you and I now live in. It truly, it has changed the way that we live, unprecedented in the history of the world, and it's brought immense pleasure and ease to our lives. But now think about this with me. Along with the pleasure has also come the pain, right? Along with the pleasure has also come the pain. And that's my second point, that progress, and nobody saw this coming, has also brought unprecedented pain to our lives. I started preaching on this whole idea of margin or teaching on it about 20 years ago when I read a book aptly called Margin. It was written by Dr. Richard Swenson, who's a MD, a medical doctor up in Wisconsin, and he was just so fed up with the stellar pace and all the ugly things that he saw in culture that he decided to do research on this thing called margin, and he wrote a book on it and also adapted his life, as we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. In his original book, Margin, listen to what he says about the pain that uh, culture, that progress has caused in our lives. He says, yet somehow with all the advantages, we are not flourishing under the gifts of modernity as one would expect. Something is wrong. If we lead the world in successes, we also lead in far too many failures. Through much of the last decade, we have developed the world's highest rates of divorce, teenage pregnancy, illicit drug abuse, crime, homicides, AIDS, litigation, functional literacy, national debt, and foreign debt. He says, we even make more garbage than anyone else. People are tired and frazzled. People are anxious and depressed. People don't have time to heal anymore. There's a psychic instability in our day that prevents peace from firmly planting itself in the human spirit. He says, despite the skeptic, this instability is not the same old nemesis recast in a modern role. Well, what we have here is a brand new disease. To be sure, the pains of the past were often horrible beyond description. To have your children or your wife die in childbirth, to have your children crippled with polio, your cattle ravaged by tuberculosis, and your crops leveled by locusts is not the common definition of the good life. But those were the pains of the past, and most of them are gone. He says, unfortunately and unexpectedly, the pains of progress are now here to take their place, and prominent among them is the disease of marginless living. And folks, I think he's right. That when you look at the cultural indicators, when you and I are like the men and women of Issachar who understand our times, you start to see that part of the pressure, part of the pain, a part of the temptation that you and I have, like fish living in swimming water or swimming in dirty water, is like exactly traced back to this thing called progress and all that it has brought. It's brought great things, but it's also brought really bad things. So I don't mean to be a downer here, but let's just look at some of these stats here so we really understand what's going on here. Consider divorces. In the year 1900, uh, we have records that there were about 10,000 divorces in the United States. By 1960, it was a half million. By 1980, it was 1.3 million. By the year 2000, it was 1.5 million. 
And I just checked recently, in the year 2012, it's still hovering around 1.5 million divorces a year. And the only reason that it didn't grow in the last decade is because marriage rate has gone down significantly. People are not getting married now because they were so put off by the amount of divorce going on in culture as well as other influences that the divorce rate has stayed at about 1.5 million per year. Consider the number of prisoners. In 1900, we had about 20,000 people in federal and state penitentiaries. In 1940, 200,000. 1980, 220,000. And then it accelerates. In the year 2000, we had 800,000. And in the year 2009, we had a record 1.6 million people in federal and state prisons, an eight-fold increase since 1980 alone. Some of you think, wow, this is population growth. It's actually bigger than population growth. Uh, but if that doesn't get you, let's talk about debt. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Uh, let's consider national, just federal debt. I'm not making a plug for the election here. Let's just talk about debt here right now. In 1900, how much federal debt did our nation have? Say it with me. Zero. We had none. We had existed for 125 years as a nation. We had no federal debt. After the Great Depression and much of the bailout going into World War II, we had in 1940 about a billion dollars worth of debt, and that scared people. By 1960, we had three, 300 billion. By 1980, we reached the one trillion mark. By the year 2000, we had $3 trillion in federal debt, and this year, as of yesterday, I looked it up, we currently have $15.5 trillion in national debt. It's scary how much debt our nation has taken on. And just so that we understand numbers like this, because, you know, when you see 15.5 trillion, you think, ah, eh, okay, it's a trillion dollars. If you were to count one to a million at one digit per second, how long do you think it would take you to count to a million? It would take you about 11 days. So if you started counting right now to a million, it would take you about 11 days. To count to one billion at one digit per second, it would take you approximately 32 years. So the difference between 1 million and 1 billion is significant. How long do you think it would take you to count to 1 trillion given one digit per second? If you guessed 32,000 years, you guessed correctly. So the difference between 11 days and 32,000 years is the difference between a million and a trillion. Uh, bankruptcies have increased 13-fold since 1960, much of due to this. District civil court cases, people suing each other, have quadrupled since 1960. Births to unmarried women, we've seen a six-fold increase since 1960. And to add just a little bit of levity to this, though it's hard to do that, the volume of junk mail that you and I get now in our computers in 1960, we had a staggering 20 billion pieces of junk mail that went out. In the year 2011, 7 trillion email spams, 350-fold increase in the amount of junk mail that you and I get. Progress has brought a lot of pleasure to our lives. It really has, and there's no arguing that. But what many people miss and it's what's going on in our souls today. It's what's going on in our culture is that it has also brought immense pain. I like how one cultural expert sums this up. This is great. He says, progress is the future you envisioned yesterday but didn't like when you woke up today. And I think he's right. Good and bad, productive and destructive, 
all at the same time. That's the culture that you and I need to understand. It's the blessing and the bane of our modern Western culture. Now, how does all of this affect margin? That's a good question because one could argue that things we're seeing in culture here um, could affect a lot of things. So, so how does it affect this whole topic of margin that we're looking at? In our time remaining today, we have just a few minutes, I want to share with you five key ways, five areas of our lives that this thing called progress has affected when it comes to the disease of marginless living. Five things that all of us have in our lives, five areas that I need you to see have been radically affected by this thing called progress. First, I want you to consider accessibility, how accessible you are to those around you. And what you need to see is that progress has ushered in a season of universal connectivity that nobody ever thought would happen to the human race. That now because of cell phones and regular phones, video phones, fax machines, emails, and satellite communications, you and I are now accessible to anybody, anywhere, and it has robbed us, culture watchers say, of any sense of privacy, solitude, and even an even pace in our lives. I thought this was great. Lucent Technologies read an ad in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago that was highly sarcastic. It said, a formal apology. Since inventing cellular and after introducing digital wireless, wireless office systems, and cordless phones, it seems that anyone can get a hold of you no matter where you are. Sorry, Lucent Technologies. We now have 327 million cell phones in the United States. The reason that that should stagger you is because we now have more cell phones, and this just happened in the last couple of years, than we do people in the United States. Did you ever think that we'd get to that level? Some of you are saying, yeah. Uh, in 1996, the volume of email exceeded the total amount of surface mail. It's what William Sapphire calls unrestrained reachability. The fact that you and I are now the accessible generation. And again, it's the way some of you think. You're thinking, well, Jamie, come on, what's the big deal? So people can reach me. I'm accessible. Here's the big deal. And that is that what we've realized is that with all of this accessibility, things like privacy and solitude and an even pace it is now been robbed from us and we have no time to process, no time to reflect, no time to evaluate, no time to just be without interruptions and without intrusions. And what you need to know is that given the known history of the world, we are the first generation that is trying to exist like this. And that should perk us up. We're going to look in the coming weeks at the life of Jesus and things that he teaches us about this idea of margin. Because even in Jesus' day, he had a lot of pressure on his time. If you came to this world as the Son of God and started performing miracles and casting out demons and healing and things like that and teaching really cool stuff, you'd have people clamoring after you too. And yet in the midst of all of this people pressure that Jesus has, one of the things we're going to see is that he would steal away on a regular basis to get alone with God for, for, for hours on end, sometimes the whole evening, sometimes the whole day. And he would do it in sometimes the most stark way where, where he would just say, I'm done, I'm leaving. I, I got to have my space, my time with my heavenly father with no apologies 
attached to it at all. Jesus is going to teach us that this idea of universal accessibility is not a healthy thing. It never has been in the history of the world, and it's robbing us of our emotional and spiritual and relational health. We're accessible, too much so, and has robbed us of margin. Now, a second thing that progress has brought in with it that has created marginless living for most Americans, and this one all of you will relate to, is activity and hurry. Activity and hurry. And we're not talking just New York City, and we're not talking L.A. We're talking anywhere in the United States right now. But we are a hurried generation. Now, now, now let me establish something very clearly for us here. The Bible says that if somebody doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Many of you have heard that passage before. In other words, the Bible affirms hard work and what we might label moderate activity as a good thing. The Bible shuns laziness and says that we all need to live productive lives. But having established that, the Bible also says, and almost every eminent theologian throughout the history of Christendom has also said that too much hurry, too much activity robs us of the needed margin that we need in our lives and is not a healthy thing. And so isn't it interesting that in 1950, the average person had about 10 activities to choose from in any day, and today experts estimate that we have 1,000 in any given day, a hundredfold increase in just 50 years. Dr. Jennifer Glass from the University of Iowa did a study a few years back on church volunteerism that perked my attention. She argued there, she showed that it now takes 20 to 30 phone calls in the average church to get the same number of volunteers that it used to take two phone calls. Why? Because everybody's so busy. We are the hurry generation. We want everything fast and we want everything now. So much so that many of us don't even realize it because we got nothing to compare it to. And yet if somebody who wasn't familiar with our culture were to come visit our culture today, they'd hear phrases like this, time crunch, fast food, rush hour, frequent flyer, express way, overnight delivery, and rapid transit. What does that say about us? We send packages by Federal Express. We use a long-distance company called Sprint. We manage our finances with Quicken. We diet with SlimFast, and we use swim trunks by Speedo. I mean, think about the culture that you and I live in. I, I like how David Sharp from USA Today said it. He said, and I quote, these days speed is of the essence. Anything that can't keep up becomes the cultural equivalent of roadkill. And he's right. The reality is today is that if you're going to make it in our marketplace setting, you better move fast, you better move quick, or you're going to get run over. And though one could argue that that's okay for the business world, though we're going to do a study here on work, one thing we do know for sure is that you can't treat your spiritual life like that. And you dare not treat your relational life like that. That it's one thing to try to deal with your marketplace setting like that, but don't drag that in to the rest of the areas of your life. It will deplete you of all that you need to have right relationships with those around you, whether it be marriage, friendships, your kids, certainly with God. 
St. Augustine was arguably one of the greatest saints who lived 1,500 years ago. And even in his world that had none of the modern things that you and I have today, he made a distinction between what he called the active life and the contemplative life. And he argued that the contemplative life is far better on any given day than an active life. And he wasn't suggesting that we shouldn't serve. He's just saying by nature, you're going to want to do. But at the end of the day, you're not a human doing, you're a human being. And that the greatest thing you can do is to be before God, to be in the relationships that you are in. And our culture robs us of this and replaces it with marginless living. And then thirdly, more quickly, consider change and stress. Consider the pace of change and stress that our lives have. I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in a small town outside of Cleveland called Chagrin Falls. We moved to my childhood home when I was in second grade. I'd lived in one home before that, and I lived in that home until I graduated from college. Compare that with the fact that now statistics show that the average American will change jobs seven to ten times and change careers an average of three times, and the same Americans will change residences 12 to 13 times in the course of a lifetime, twice as many as people living in Britain and France, four times as many as people living in Ireland. We live in a world of constant change. In 1611, the King James Bible came out, and for 300 years it was unrivaled as the English translation. Today, in our culture, we have over 900 English translations and variations of the Bible. Every year from Christianity Today magazine, I get their annual Bible issue, and I'm telling you, it makes my head swim. It feels like a Sears catalog from the 1950s. The reality is, is that you and I live in a world of constant change. And again, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, what's well, the big deal? Come on, it's life, Jamie. It's wonderful. It's change. Here's what every psychologist would say and what the Bible affirmed way before any of them came along, and that is that all change equals stress. Doesn't matter whether it's good change or bad change. You look at the stress scale, it's just as stressful to grieve the loss of a loved one than it is to get married. It's just as stressful to lose a job as it is to buy a house. All change equals stress. And the reality is, is that you and I live in a culture in which stress and change are normative as accepted as the tires on your car. And yet every doctor will tell you that stress produces heart disease, gastrointestinal problems, headaches, insomnia, and a myriad of emotional struggles. Would it surprise you to know that we have more therapists in the United States than police? I have documented that. It's well documented that when you look at sociologists and therapists and social workers, we have more people in that profession than we do police. That's unheard of in the history of the world. And yet that's indicative of the culture that you and I live in. We're stressed out. And then just consider all the choices and decisions that you and I have to make every day. Prison Fellowship, which is a great organization, <laughs> released a stat a few years back in which they cited that the average prisoner makes about 20 decisions a day. I have no idea what those decisions are, but I can guess, you know, things like maybe what to eat or what to wear. I don't know, maybe not even those things. Compared to those of us on the outside who make an average of 120 decisions every single day. And that's just in order to keep up. I mentioned earlier Dick Swenson. He's written a couple books on this idea of margin. He wrote margin, and then he wrote one a few years later called The Overload Syndrome. 
I remember reading this. It's all marked up. And on page 86 here, he talks about all the choices that we have in our lives, just facing us every day. And this, by the way, is 15 years old, so it's got to be even worse now. He says we have 55 medical specialties to choose from, 60 different kinds of elevator music, 80 different blood pressure medicines, 93 brands of bottled water, 125 kinds of yogurt, 177 kinds of salad dressing, 184 kinds of breakfast cereal, 249 kinds of soap, 250 brands of, or kinds of toothpaste, four, uh, 500 different bachelor's degrees being offered at college, 551 kinds of coffee, 1,200 new business books published every year, 1,500 movies to choose from on your satellite dish, 2,500 types of light bulbs in one store alone, 3,000 different medications in the physician's desk reference, 5,000 magazines to choose from in English, 30,000 different products in the average grocery store, and 25 million different versions of automobiles when you put, combine all possible styles, options, and colors that are available. And some of you wonder why you feel overwhelmed. You walk into the average grocery store today, and we have more food available there than, again, some people living a few hundred years ago would ever confront in their entire life. But we are clearly in decision overload. And by the way, all that doesn't even take into account the really big decisions. Do I put my kid in a public school, a private school, or homeschool? Do I buy a house and assume a mortgage? Do I change jobs? Do I change churches? Should both of us work? Should I put my parents in a retirement home? I mean, those are all the big decisions, and we're in decision overload. And what doesn't help this is the fifth area of our life, and with this we'll wrap this up, and it's what we call information or media overload. You know, it's fascinating. We studied the book of Daniel last year as a church, and toward the end of the book of Daniel, in chapter 12, verse 4, it says in a prophetic way that in the last days, knowledge will increase. Interesting, just kind of thrown in there. In the last days... It says people will run to and fro and knowledge will increase. And isn't it interesting that you and I in the current generation we're in are bombarded now with more knowledge and more information than, again, anybody in the history of the known world to the point that culture watchers call it data smog or data side. Octo Barnett is a medical doctor. And he once made this comment, look up here on the screen, he said, if the most conscientious physician were to attempt to keep up with the literature by reading two articles per day in one year, this individual would be more than 800 years behind. Our current Library of Congress contains more than 147 million documents housed in 838 miles of shelving. And again, some of you are saying, well, Jamie, come on, that's a Library of Congress. I don't go there. I'm not a doctor. The reality is, however, this hits you at your home every day. There's a landmark edition of the New York Times newspaper on November 13, 1987. It was 1,600 pages long. It contained more than 2 million lines of type, 12 million words, and it weighed 12 pounds. And that was all before the digital age. I can't even imagine what hits us now through our computer every day. And it's too much. We are flooded with information and media that we just can't soak in. We're beyond the saturation point. We're clearly beyond 100% capacity. And so think about it with me, folks. Be men and women of Issachar. 
Progress, to be sure, has been a blessing in so many ways, but it's also come at a high cost. And it could be summed up in one word, and it's the word I want you to latch on to today, and it's the word overload. That, that when it comes to the areas of our life, whether it be accessibility, whether it be uh, information and technology, whether it would be just the culture that we live in today with all the things that it brings. It's, it's overload to our lives. We have no margin. We have no room left on the page. We have no energy left at the end of the day, no reserves to draw from when things implode. That's why that video that we looked at from Dave earlier was so revealing. I don't know if you caught it, but some of us, either figuratively or just like Dave, eventually get to the point where we just pull off the freeway of life and we say, enough is enough. I can't take it anymore. And it's right at that point that God says, but I want to help. It's right at that point where God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's going to be the message of the rest of this series, that when you and I finally get honest and admit what's going on in our lives, that God wants us now to develop margin. And he wants to help us develop margin. Again, as I said earlier, today's been a lot of information for us. From this point on, we're going to look at Jesus' life to help guide us. But in order to be that, we need to be men and women of Issachar who understand our times and know what Phoenicians need to do. Because the reality is, is that we all have a choice. And that's the hope that I want to leave you with here today. It's choice that got us into this, and it's choice that can get us out of this. And I'm not saying that 5,000 people that come to Scottsdale Bible Church are going to change all of culture, but listen, I do know that 5,000 people can change their individual lives. And I do know that 5,000 individual lives can change some families. And I do know that some families can eventually change a church. And I do know that churches can eventually have a dent in culture. And so the reality is, is that though we might not change American life, I think that ship has sailed in some ways, I think we can change our lives and refuse to buy in to all of the stuff going on around us and finally develop some margin. One last thought. I was a little bit hard on myself earlier when I said to you all that I'm a hypocrite when it comes to margin. I, I still struggle with this thing, as I will admit, but I got to tell you I'm a lot better than I was 20 years ago. When somebody first confronted me with this whole idea of margin and the pace of my life, I developed a Sabbath day resulting from that. And now you can ask anybody here on Mondays, unless you died and you wouldn't know it because you're dead, unless you died... I don't accept phone calls. I don't return emails. Monday is my day off. It's my Sabbath. And many times when people say to me, what'd you do on Monday? I'll say, nothing. Isn't it wonderful? Because it's my day of rest. I don't mow the grass. I, I, I don't do projects necessarily around the house. Sometimes I will if that sounds relaxing to me. But I'll hike, or I'll read, or I'll nap. Uh, you're yawning right there. I get that. Or I'll nap. There's just some days. He's yawning for a different reason. There are just some days that, uh, that, that, that I just let go one day a week. And there's other things that I'm going to share with you that have allowed me, even as a pastor of a large church, to have some margin in my life, learning to say no to certain things. We're going we're gonna to unpack all of this stuff. But there's hope. There's hope for any of us that life has gotten the best of as we allow the Bible and Jesus to be our guide.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we've just started to unpack a little bit of this thing called margin today, that we can end on a note that though we've had to wallop some of us over the head with all these stats and the truth so that we really see the problem, God, at the end of the day, we're just a few choices away from relief. And God, I thank you that the life of Jesus and your word will offer us a solution-based answer to many of the things that progress has brought into our lives. And so, God, I pray for each person here today and certainly at our 930 venue and other venues that, God, as they um, are giving thought, hopefully sober thought, to their own lives, that, God, they could be men and women who understand their times and know what we should do. And that, Lord, we not be afraid to make courageous, bold decisions that would affect the trajectory of our lives as we seek to honor you and follow you and love you and find you this side of heaven. And so, God, I pray you just journey with us through this time. And, Lord, uh, help us all to find joy, renewed joy, as we take a look at this whole thing called margin. And so we commit the next few weeks of our church to you, certainly our lives as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and his precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you all next week.